I actually came to Twitch because I was an ardent user and I spent a lot of time in my previous roles using Twitch as an archetype. This is Tom Verrilli, Chief Product Officer at Twitch, a social media site that lets content creators host live broadcasts for their followers. So I'd worked at kind of classic social media companies. And in all of those, what you are always trying to do is kind of understand what is it that makes some kind of communities so powerful and so sticky and so dense. From the outside, Tom saw that the communities within Twitch were especially sticky and dense. But Twitch didn't begin as a social media site. Far from it. It began as a live streaming site called Justin.tv. The original idea consisted of co-founder Justin Kahn literally putting his entire life on a video feed via a camera attached to his baseball cap. Soon, other users could broadcast their lives, too. What Kahn had actually created was a uniquely interactive streaming service where audiences could watch and interact with a broadcast as it was happening. As a streamer, I can see who's watching me and I know like your name. And as a, as a viewer, I can participate with the streamer. And what I'm saying has the capacity to kind of change the content in real time in a way that being a follower of somebody who makes videos can never be. One category of live streams became particularly popular. Streams featuring gamers playing games. Eventually, Khan and his co-founder Emmett Shear decided to pivot to focus on gaming. Justin TV became Twitch. Today, the platform is home to over 7 million streamers, with more than 30 million people watching streams every day. Each of those streamers is an individual broadcasting whatever they want, not just playing video games. The magic of Twitch, for those not familiar with it, is that the combination of live video and live chat means there's like a fundamental recognition loop that occurs here that doesn't occur anywhere else. Instead of just viewing, upvoting, or commenting on videos, Users interact with real people in real time, alongside other users doing the same. The streamer's part of the conversation, too, just like hanging out in real life. And what our streamers realized is that when they spend time not playing a game, but just sitting and talking to their viewers and to their followers, it builds this feeling of kind of intimacy and trust that ends up being excellent for content, excellent for their community, and also really revenue-dense for them. In 2017, Tom made the leap from recreational user to employee. By that time, Twitch had been acquired and was changing the way people viewed streaming. As audiences grew, streamers began to monetize. Some even made it their full-time job. And their streams had become much more than a video feed. They'd become communities. In an inherently isolating time, Twitch's dragon we slay is loneliness. There's been plenty of discussion of social media's effect on society, on self-image, and on politics. And Twitch, as a major social network, is by no means exempt from that. But when COVID-19 shut down physical spaces and forced most of life to move online, even Tom was surprised to see just how essential Twitch's communities had become. Streamers felt very responsible for being community leaders. There was an awful lot of people who took up streaming because they knew that people were alone and bored and needed that sense of support and were feeling isolated. People were isolated. They were scared and felt unsafe just stepping outside their homes. They were disconnected from their communities. And so there were hundreds of streamers I spoke to who were streaming more, not because they had more free time, but because they were worried and they wanted to be there to provide a sense of comfort. In 2020, people viewed more than a trillion minutes of content on the platform, an 80% increase in viewership in a single year. 
nobody had seen the shock of COVID coming, but Twitch had been perfectly positioned to absorb it and cater to users in a crisis. So it becomes this incredibly wonderful place in the midst of what was not such a wonderful time. I'm Elise Hugh. And I'm Josh Klein. And this is Built for Change, a podcast from Accenture. So, Josh, what do you think explains Twitch's explosive popularity during that first lockdown year? I think it really hit the right note in terms of having a group of communities that were were relatively niche, but really had a high level of trust. You know, you, you felt like you were an active participant and you knew the ground rules and, and you were with, you know, you were with your people. Yeah, that makes sense. And global shocks like the pandemic obviously had an impact on Twitch, but have also changed all sorts of brands and our lives in one way or another. So if yeah. you're running a company, what's really important, I think, is understanding how this new normal makes people feel and what their reactions mean for business. Right, because people are reacting to these shocks in all kinds of ways. And mm-hmm. and without understanding those reactions, it's just impossible for brands to meet people where they are. Yeah. I, I think really that's what Twitch got so right. And it's also what we're looking at today. How can a brand build connections and trust with its customers when at times those customers might feel like the world's fallen apart? And also what technologies are gonna change the ways that we navigate our online worlds? We've actually been in a period what feels like constant instability for some time now. This is Katie Burke, co-author of Accenture's 2023 Life Trends Report. Constant disruption in our lives and instability in our lives, whether it's the inflation or the war in Ukraine disrupting the supply chains to the financial systems to the oil and gas. You know, it's a lot that we're dealing with and it's, you know, compounding all at once. There are so many shocks in the news today that Collins Dictionary's 2022 word of the year was permacrisis, a new word for a supposedly new level of global turmoil. Is it new? I don't know, because I do think that humanity has always had a crisis here, a crisis there to deal with. And maybe it's because digital has allowed us to feel the crisis around the world more frequently. Looking back at the last century, permacrisis could apply to, well, most of it, really. I mean, world wars, a global depression, social upheavals. So is the situation today really that different? I think we're reaching a point where our reactions to these crises are a bit more related to a threat response. And brands have to really understand that the difference between a person and their attitudes and their behaviors on a normal day where, where crisis is is not the norm is one way, but when people are facing a threat response, that's a completely different mindset. That's a bit sharper and it's a bit more strong in reactions. It is the fight or flight. You've probably witnessed people exhibiting a fight response in recent years, if not experienced it yourself. People around the world are increasingly willing to get off the sidelines and fight for what they believe in. They're out in the streets, trying to demand change to bring stability back to what they see as an an injustice. They're fighting and they're angry. Some people are dying for these causes. And when people feel that they can't fight or when fighting exhausts them, they look to escape the pressure. That's the flight. 
When you can't control and you can't, you really can't change the world, you focus on what's in front of you. As she looks at the differing ways people respond to global shocks, Katie says there's one trend businesses need to be aware of, which the Life Trends 2023 report calls, I will survive. As people internalize instability as the new norm, their behaviors are going to adapt, and businesses will have no choice but to adapt with them. As much as I love to talk about the human behavior side, this year humans in tech are so close that we think businesses have to catch up. And that, that's kind of the biggest surprise that I've had coming out of this, this trends report this year. Social media companies are in an especially tricky situation because for some people, adapting means questioning whether the tech that feeds them the news is actually good for them. The algorithms are showing us that they know us so well. They're showing us what they think we want to know, what they think we want to see to the point where we don't even know if we're living in our own bubble because of the way the algorithms are tailored to, to, and know so much about us. This hasn't been the biggest story of the last few years because, well, there's been a lot going on. But social media has played a huge role in recent shocks and not always a positive one. In response, there's been a profound shift in ways that people use social media or don't. People are getting frustrated and they're either voicing it, you know, voicing the frustration of it, or they're just leaving and going to new platforms. Why leave one platform and seek out another? Well, it has to do with another life trend that Accenture calls, I'm a believer. People may feel angst about a specific site or social media in general, but at the same time, they're actively seeking out online communities where they can feel a sense of belonging. And when they find a group where they do belong, one where they feel happy and comfortable, they're gonna feel serious loyalty to it. Katie says this is why certain online communities have flourished. What we've seen happen more and more since the pandemic is there's a shift towards communities of interest. These are people that get together on certain platforms and create communities based on whatever niche topic you want. So what's actually working? Well, for one thing, people are gravitating towards video games and platforms that they believe offer them safety and support. They're looking for real communities. These are structured in a way that allows the community to keep in touch with each other, to create rituals with each other, to contact each other through text or through audio. What this is doing is giving you a sense of digital belonging where we didn't have digital belonging before. The companies that succeeded in this moment had the trust of their users and offered them the kind of safe community that they couldn't find elsewhere. These are skills that brands will have to develop if they want to succeed in an era defined by a sense of permacrisis. So I look at the permacrisis out there, but I also look at the creative wave that's happening too. And use the new tools where you can as brands, engage with people in new ways. It comes back to, to the utility of what you're trying to do and how it fits in this new world that we're walking into in 2023. You know, I feel like a lot of us through the course of the pandemic sort of sat up and said, wait a minute, what am I spending all my time and money on? You know, yeah. am I just doom scrolling endlessly? Is that really what I want to do in the wee hours of the night? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's not just reading social media too, right? Sure. It could be the news. It could be online shopping that doesn't really feel purposeful. Yeah, or buying stuff that you don't need or don't believe in. It, it feels like consumers really reevaluated their relationship with pretty much everything. Yeah. 
And we've seen a lot of people lose faith in social media companies within the last few years, especially those who have been ditching them altogether. Yeah, then that's what makes Tom Verley's story so fascinating. As we heard at the top of the show, Twitch already had some unique features that let streamers build really vibrant communities even before COVID hit. But when it did hit, Tom and his team were blown away by the response of streamers and viewers, and it really drove home just how important it was to maintain the trust that Twitch had developed between the brand and the community. The internet is functionally an on-demand medium, right? I can get anything, anytime at my fingertips. It's also therefore inherently isolating because we're no longer doing things together anymore. Remember, Tom was a Twitch user long before he worked there. Like many of the streamers he now serves, Tom fell in love with that sense of community that was lacking elsewhere. Twitch is the antithesis of that. Twitch is not an on-demand medium. The content only exists when the streamer is live and you have to be there to experience it. It's not just the audience that feels the power of the platform's community. Tom says that this recognition loop is just as beneficial to the people creating the content. When I talk to folks, they find it stressful and full of pressure and in many ways lonely, right? I'm sitting at home and I'm trying to edit this video and I hope that it's great and I put it out there and now all of a sudden what I am doing is crossing my fingers and waiting for the view count number to go up. And my self-worth is tied to that. Whereas on Twitch, you are co-creating with your audience. And so the kind of pressure for you to be the be all and end all is kind of much lower. That instant feedback, that sense of co-creating is what sets Twitch apart. 70% of the people who show up on Twitch for the first time today come with prior knowledge of the streamer they want to watch. They either line directly on that person's channel page or they show up and they search that person. So when we're building, what we need to do is recognize that people are coming here for our streamers. For the streamers and for the unique communities those streamers foster. Twitch has probably more emojis than exist anywhere else on the internet. Every streamer creates custom emojis, which we call emotes, for their channel. And if you're a subscriber or a kind of follower under certain conditions, you can use them. They're brilliant. Features like these make each channel feel like its own little world and allow users to create a recognizable, unique online identity. The benefit of having 8 million streamers on the platform is they are way more creative than I could ever be or any of my product managers could be just by sheer volume, let alone who they are. Not many product managers have a resource like that, but that access is a two-way street, which poses a challenge. As Tom said, everything that happens on Twitch happens live, and that includes testing out new features. Tom has compared updating his product to going into someone's office and rewiring the lights while they're there, trying to earn a living. It's not okay to try and optimize simply for internal mechanisms and disrupt the livelihood of a whole bunch of folks. My favorite kind of challenge that we, we see all the time. I'll be talking to the team about something that we're trying to do in our broad strategy. And my team will all the time hold me on like, that doesn't sound like a streamer problem. That sounds like a you problem, right? Before Tom and his team act to solve a problem, they have to decide if fixing that problem will be worth the hassle it could cause their users. But the answer to that question is often yes, because like any social media platform, not everybody's acting in good faith. Hate raids are basically when a group of people on a third-party site pick a person and choose to brigade them. It happened a lot from alt-right sites across to kind of particularly queer and BIPOC creators on Twitch through 2020 and 2021. Twitch's unique interactivity has allowed streamers from marginalized groups to thrive there. In some cases, streamers feel more like their true selves on Twitch than anywhere else. This is a huge part of what makes the platform special. But for Tom, the challenge is keeping those spaces safe for the most vulnerable. 
when you're building safety features, it's not just how do we do good for the most people, it's how do we do good for the people who need it the most. And so you may actually be kind of prioritizing work disproportionately towards groups that don't represent a large percentage of your kind of metrics, but actually are a fundamentally important part of a community because communities aren't just paint by numbers, they are actually about how they feel. That's why, in recent years, Twitch has deployed tools that allow streamers to manage their own communities, letting them determine who can access their channel and who to keep out. I was really proud that we managed to kind of ship a series of features designed with the community that allows people with the touch of one button to kind of disappear any of that negativity and any of those people engaged in that. Over the last few years, the company has stepped up its focus on giving streamers more control over their communities. In many cases, Tom says, the company's been able to prevent hate raids and other bad behaviors before they begin. Behind the scenes, we identified and and ejected millions of accounts that were being prepared in preparation for something like that or had been used historically for something like that. And so I think there's this combination of like, how do we help propel creativity forward and at the same time protect our amazing creative streamers from any negativity that it kind of is swirling around the internet? Tom says that verifying digital identities will be key to this type of work in the future and that there's still tough conversations ahead. It's certainly true that over the next five to 10 years, there will be a broad push across the industry to try and work out how do we get to identity verification, whereas right now it is what we would call attestation. You tell me who you are and and how old you are. I think the tech on that is largely unsettled, and I think it'll be a really interesting period to work out whether or not that is industry-led or regulatory-led as to how do we adopt those, because there's certainly privacy trade-offs that come with that. And there's an awful lot of people for whom the separation of their online persona and their real-world persona is fundamentally important and valuable to them. That's kind of the premise of an awful lot of kind of conversations around the metaverse going on right now, that I do have an online persona whose identity is as valuable to me as my real-world one. There's a lot of work to be done, but Tom's excited to see what Twitch's users create in terms of content, in terms of communities, and in terms of their own digital identities. We just see people create these incredible new genres of content, and anytime we can give people a blank canvas and a new brush... I'm just excited to see what comes of that. So I think that if I had a stream, I kind of missed the wave on this, but I'd probably do mukbang. Is that those streams that are basically an eating show? Right. It was really big about 10 years ago in Korea, especially. And I I could do it still in the States. And there's a lot of folks who mukbang, they're eating while they're also talking about a topic. There's, there's somebody who mukbangs and also talks about true crime. So she does do the double niche. <laughs> but is it Scandinavian true crime nor? <laughs> exactly. But yeah, what did strike me about Twitch and what it does is that so many of the folks who come to the brand already have a following. And what Twitch does is help them kind of build on their online identity and then create bigger communities around them, which is cool. Right, right. They actually use the technology functionally to help create more trust and and more viability for those communities, which I think is really, really critical. Yeah, yeah. We live so much of our lives online and all of the online communities we join rely on this fundamental element of trust. So how can we know that people are who they say they are and that bad actors aren't scamming us and passing themselves off as someone else? Yeah. And as you heard, verifying identities online is going to be one of the biggest challenges facing brands like Twitch in the near future. So we sought out someone who's solving for this. 
Transmute, it's a company working at the forefront of the digital identity space, where emerging technologies are starting to address problems exactly like the one Tom described. As part of just working in the genetic sequencing industry, I had one of the earliest opportunities to have my full genome sequenced. That's Carol Fowler, CEO and co-founder of Transmute. Before she was helping businesses securely navigate the difficult and time-consuming journey of verifying information online, Carol worked in bioelectronics, and that gave her the opportunity to get her DNA sequenced, an opportunity that introduced her to the kinds of problems Transmute is now addressing. And so, of course, after that experience being a data nerd, I really wanted to own the data. I wanted, you know, initially to be able to autonomously contribute it to research programs at will. There's nothing more unique to you than your own genome, but it took Carol years to actually get her hands on her genomic information. And so I went kind of through the gamut of trying to find who owned the data. And ultimately, the service that sequenced my genome, there was a variety of, I think, M&As or sell-offs. And so that data changed hands several times. But I did finally, several years later, obtain that data. And it arrived in a hard drive that I paid for with a sticky note and my patient ID on, on top of it. How can it take that much effort just to get ownership over data that really should belong to you? These were the questions in Carol's mind as she started Transmute. That's what got me into caring a lot about user-owned data and privacy. And that's what Transmute's all about. Deploying verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers, also known as DIDs, or self-sovereign identities. Decentralized identifiers are bits of information controlled by their owner that confirm that owner's identity. They're unique, verifiable, and not part of any centralized registry. The actual digital identifier is a packet of data, but it functions similarly to a physical identifier, which we all have. The favorite example of the industry is your driver's license when you're going to a bar. If you want to enter a bar today, you need to show your physical credential, your driver's license. Unlike DIDs, a driver's license relies on a centralized registry, the Department of Motor Vehicles in the United States, for example. And when you hand it over to the bouncer, you're actually handing them more information than they need to know. And you are disclosing your eye color and your height and your address and all sorts of other information as part of that transaction. That's one advantage of digital identifiers. You can provide all the information you need to and none that you don't. When you use a verifiable credential that's been signed with a decentralized identifier, you have a digital representation of that same information. But now the bar or the restaurant can verify just the minimum amount of data needed to serve you. And in this case, that's just simply that you're above 21. Transmute provides the platform for that kind of verification. And one area where it's sorely needed is in supply chains. This became apparent to Carol in her past when she worked on semiconductors and bioelectronics, really important technology that can be really tricky to manufacture and ship. These are two of the most highly complex and highly regulated supply chains on the planet. The materials are really complex and generally no one factory in that case is capable of engineering or or manufacturing the full chip. And so there's a lot of places for error, time and money to be lost. There is quite literally a problem in the steel supply chain where one way to circumvent certain kinds of tariffs is to misclassify the goods. Maybe you've classified these metals as scrap on the documentation when in fact they're not. Or perhaps you've classified these goods as coming from a different country because the tariffs are higher if it comes from yours. 
Decentralized identifiers can't prevent fraud entirely, but they can make it a lot easier to track and expose when people are being dishonest. Sticking with the driver's license metaphor, right now, someone who looks kind of like you could steal your license and pretend to be you. But what if your license could instantly tell the authorities when it had changed hands? With something like decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials, you can't lie tomorrow that you lied today. DIDs also have the potential to streamline processes that cause headaches for everyone involved. As someone who experienced a lot of those headaches in her past jobs, Carol sees immense value in digital tools that can instantly verify information that would otherwise take weeks, months, or years to get straight. You have, on average, 50 pieces of paper in a cross-border transaction, changing hands up to 30 times or amongst 30 different actors sometimes, they're not all going to have made the same choices about the software infrastructure they're using. And they're going to have some concept about where they store it and what systems they generate that data in, but it's not going to be the same. Now, using decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials, both can be positively impacted. Competing interests can be met at the very same time. And that same speed, speed of commerce and precision of enforcement that a customs authority gets also accrues to the companies who are using the technology. Today, Carol and Transmute are applying DIDs to the ridiculously complex world of imports and exports, and they're thinking about where else they can apply them. She says a day is coming when this technology will simplify the way people navigate the online world, as well as the physical world, giving them the kind of control she was seeking when she started her quest for her genome. If I could, with a click of a button, provision to my new dentist everything they need to know without filling out the same form I filled out for 10 other <laughs> professionals or, or, or doctors, if we can show the usefulness or the utility, I think that would probably be what actually goes farther. Josh, as we hear about the kind of simplicity and security that Transmute is bringing to import businesses, what strikes you about what's happening in verification? Uh, it feels like it's kind of a pivotal moment for mm. it, right? Like we, we've got all these crises of trust coming from particularly technologies like generative AI, yeah. which are really forcing the question of how do you do identity? Yeah, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for companies to offer deeper connections and new levels of trust. Absolutely. So to learn more about what we covered in today's episode of Built for Change, download the Accenture Foresight app. There you'll find this report, which also gets into other topics on changing attitudes toward office life and AI creativity, plus all the latest insights you need to navigate change. Thank you to Accenture's Katie Burke. And to Tom Verrilli and Carol Fowler for talking to us. Built for Change is a podcast from Accenture. More episodes are coming soon. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, leave us a review. 